After serving as an American soldier in World War II and the Korean War, John Peter McAllister found himself in Japan. It was there he became the first accidental ninja. By the 1980s, he was a cantankerous old man who had lived alone a lot of years. His words, not mine. He returned to the USA after finding out he had a daughter. In a surfing town in Illinois, he meets a young man named Max Keller. Max lives in his van with Henry, a small rodent of some type. Together, the three of them travel the country, helping those in need, while also looking for McAllister's daughter. Oh, and an ex-student of McAllister is chasing them around for some reason. Today we talk about Master Ninja One, which was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. The Master is here. He's the Supreme Warrior. Even his eyes can kill you. His student is the supreme heartthrob. His eyes can melt you. Oh, I don't know. Master Ninja, a.k.a. Master Ninja 1, since there's a Master Ninja 2, is the story of John Peter McAllister, played by film veteran Lee Van Cleef. McAllister is a Korean War veteran who settled in Japan after the war and became a student, then master, of the art of the ninja, also known as ninjutsu, at least in this film. Thirty years later, he somehow discovers he has a daughter and so returns to the U.S. to look for her. This is one of the overarching plots of the story, along with a former student who relentlessly pursues him with some kind of vendetta for some reason. Lee Van Cleef once said, Being born with a pair of beady eyes was the best thing that ever happened to me. Sergio Leone certainly made good use of those eyes in the 1966 spaghetti western The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Can those eyes really kill, though? That seems a wee bit hyperbolic. As for the eyes of this film's sidekick and supposed heartthrob, Timothy Van Patten. Hey, two Dutch surnames. Hmm. I'm going to vote no on the melting thing. He's just kind of goofy. No matter how hard the producers pitched this concept and this cast, it was never going to be watchable until Best Brains got hold of it for episode 322 of Mystery Science Theater 3000. How could they do a TV show, you may ask? Well, I have two words for you. Or three, if you're picky. Film Ventures International. Film Ventures was a distributor-cum-production company that capitalized on, often with a modicum of success, throwing together knockoffs of established successful properties long before The Asylum launched the first Sharknado film or Let's Fool the Gullible in the Checkout Line stuff like Atlantic Rim and Transmorphers. Unlike The Asylum, Film Ventures didn't always get away with it. 
when they tried to cash in on the success of The Exorcist in 1974 by acquiring the rights to the demon possession horror film Beyond the Door, they found their niche. Now, Warner Brothers sued for copyright infringement, but it was determined they couldn't really lay claim to the key horror scenes, already tropes, in The Exorcist, and the suit was dismissed. When Jaws broke box office records, Film Ventures threw together a series of scary animal projects, starting with Grizzly in 1976. It actually did pretty well, becoming the most financially successful independent film of 1976. Oddly, this was also the beginning of the financial trouble for Film Ventures, as its founder, entrepreneur Edward L. Montoro, thought he might just keep that $39 million in profits all to himself. Another lawsuit encouraged the strangely greedy Montoro to return the profits to the actual filmmakers. In 1980, Film Ventures acquired Great White, yet another Jaws ripoff, this one from Italy. It starred James Franciscus and Vic Morrow, two legit actors, but Universal quickly filed a lawsuit claiming the film was just too derivative of Spielberg's mega-hit. This time, the big studio won, and Great White was pulled from theaters after only one week. This was a financial disaster for Montoro's little company. By 1984, FVI had taken too many legal and financial blows and was in dire straits. Not only that, but Montoro was facing a costly divorce. In a move that could have been a plot for one of his films, Montoro helped himself to one million out of the film ventures till and skedaddled. He didn't just blow town, he utterly disappeared. Nobody really knows to this day where he scarpered off to, although some believe he probably went to Mexico. Not all of their repackaged films were direct rip-offs of other properties, but there's no shortage of attempts to cash in on popular box office trends. Mystery Science Theater was fortunate to license a whole boatload of these things, and they are perfect for riffing. 1982's The Blade Master, repackaged by FBI as Cave Dwellers for some reason, is the sequel to Ator the Fighting Eagle, and both films, starring the beefy Miles O'Keefe, are totally not an attempt to cash in on the success of Conan the Barbarian. 1983's Extraterrestrial Visitors, repackaged as Pod People, is kind of Invasion of the Body Snatchers meets E.T., because why not? Right around this time, a few distributors were toying with the idea of taking failed or not-so-failed TV shows and forging a couple of episodes into crude feature films. ITC even jammed a couple of Season 2 episodes of Space 1999 together and called the resulting 1982 TV movie Cosmic Princess if you can believe it. Film Ventures, not to be left behind, jumped right on that bandwagon, and one of their first efforts was not one, but two feature films cobbled together from a few episodes of the failed 1984 TV show, The Master, which is the subject of today's show. The 
The Master originally aired on NBC in winter 1984 as a mid-season replacement for another show. Master Ninja is literally just the first two episodes of The Master glued together. There's no explanation why the cast, including up-and-comer Demi Moore and plot, changes halfway through the film. The audience is just expected to roll with it. The original music for the show, by 70s go-to composer Bill Conti, is classic 70s action, with lots of brass and that ubiquitous electric bass and wacka rhythm guitar. It promises a lot. Unfortunately, the show itself doesn't deliver. Anybody over the age of about 14, even then, was going to be bored senseless with the contrived, cheesy episodes full of rote, mysterious Eastern martial arts mumbo-jumbo and random fight scenes that come across like a stunt performer's reel. If you were college age when this was released in 1984, the name Lee Van Cleef had some serious box office cred. He had a prominent role in the 1980 chop-socky Chuck Norris vehicle, The Octagon, which also featured ninjas, so somebody thought casting him in this made some kind of sense. Sadly, fans of the steely-eyed Van Cleef, especially of the heavies he typically played in TV and film westerns, were bound to be disappointed with this blatant attempt to cash in on the Eastern martial arts craze of the 70s. Enter the Ninja, starring Shokosugi and Franco Nero, released just a few years earlier, is credited as being direct inspiration for this show. I think producers thought that just slapping Ninja on a series was guaranteed win. Even without Ninja in the title, so many bad action projects felt obligated to jam at least one character, preferably Chinese or Japanese, in the cast wielding a katana or a bag of shuriken, no matter how little sense it made. Sticking with the MST oeuvre here, Angel's Revenge comes to mind with the bonus value add of the token ninja in that one being a hot young woman. What was the pitch for that thing anyway? No, no, really, it's Charlie's Angels meets the A-Team, but instead of only three hot chicks, we have seven. Oh, and Bruce Lee is box office gold these days, so let's make one of them a hot, katana-wielding martial artist chick. Oh, instead of plain old conversion van like the A-Team, let's stick a gun turret on this one. Oh, and don't forget the Hanna-Barbera-esque goofy sound effects during all the fight scenes, because that's totally not an auditory non-sequitur. Speaking of vans... Of course, the master has to have a van, and because of the success of Any Which Way But Loose, which is a loner in a truck with an orangutan, we have to have a sidekick critter for the human sidekick. In this case, it's a hamster or gerbil, I'm not sure which. Doesn't matter. It's also a giant non sequitur. For some reason, they also shoehorn in annoying, unnecessary voiceovers by Van Patten. It's pretty much a truism that if you need voiceovers, you've failed in your storytelling. There's a lot of fail here. It's also unfortunate that Timothy Van Patten and his garbled line readings are not heartthrob material, no matter how dryly devil-may-care they try to portray him. He just comes across as an emotionally unstable punk. 
There's no reason on this planet that a real ninja master would spend more than five minutes with him, let alone take him on as an instant apprentice. Next to Van Cleef, he's pretty low wattage. When I first saw his name in this, I just assumed that he was one of Vince Van Patten's sons. Turns out, in a bit of Martin Sheen, Joe Estevez drama, he's his half-brother. Crazy. That said, if the producers thought Van Cleef was going to be a draw for anybody but diehard fans of his earlier work, they were smoking something special. It's obvious that good old Lee, mostly due to his advanced years, does not do any of the fighting in this show. That honor goes to the aforementioned Enter the Ninja star, Sho Kosugi, this show's stunt coordinator. He also plays the resident nemesis. It's too bad the writing is just so contrived and tropey and cliche. Van Cleef just doesn't have anything to work with. He gives it his all and doesn't just phone it in for a paycheck, but the material is just kind of lame. Let's just say this is no kung fu. Like many film ventures properties, especially the ones used by the Mystery Science Theater gang, part of the repackaging for distribution meant retitling the project and redoing the opening credits. This is the era when VHS was king and video editing was rudimentary. For these films, it means Casio keyboard, synth music, and weirdly posterized clips from a totally different film for some reason. It's just the film venture's way, I guess. I know Jeff often goes to Rotten Tomatoes for reviews and comments, but either I'm not a very good researcher or there just isn't anything on either the Master or Master Ninja, so I'm gonna have to go to IMDB instead. The titles of the reviews are good enough for most of these, since most of the reviews are just recaps of the plot, which isn't really helpful anyway. Hamavore Rex says, Formulaic but watchable. Damned with faint praise, Haim. MM39 says, Lame, even for a 15-year-old. Ooh, ouch. Hava Kibala seems to be a big fan, declaring, Highly underrated and goes on to say, absolutely stunning and action-packed. It's a shame this series didn't make it past one season. I guess it was just too good. I give you an E for enthusiasm, Hawakibala. The best user review, I think, is from Z Maturin, Zmaturin, who states, the best TV show repackaged into a film starring Timothy Van Patten and Lee Van Cleef ever. Well, I can't argue with that, so I won't. Master Ninja isn't officially streaming anywhere, but you can find the MST3K version on YouTube with a little difficulty, and on Shout Factory with commercials. Hi, Kiba! Hi, I'm Max Keller. I'm a seagull. This is how I usually leave a bar. Ooh. Thanks, Nancy. That was great. And I guess Hava Kibala proves that there's an audience for everything, I guess. But now that we've heard Nancy tell you all about the original <clears throat> film, it's my job to talk about the Rift version. Master Ninja was the 22nd episode of the third season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. You know, back then they were doing 24 episodes a year, which was pretty amazing. 
You know, I'm not so down on the new MSTs as Nancy, but when I think about it, they were doing 24 shows a year with just a handful of people and very little money, and those shows were great. Now they have millions of dollars, and we wait forever to get 13 mildly amusing shows, and I still watch the newer ones, however. You know, I, I just like watching bad movies, and there are laughs here and there. But for this show, we're going back to the Joel Hodgson era with Trace Beaulieu, Kevin Murphy, and Frank Conniff. And I think I've talked about this last time, but I think Frank and Trace are so good together. Nothing against the later Mads, but these two are on the top of the list. You know, sometimes I can watch a bad movie or TV show and think, well, it was a valiant effort, you guys tried, it just didn't work. Not here. This is just bad. Everything about it is just wrong. And I also came to the conclusion that, well, I should think before I act. You see, Nancy asked, what was the next MST episode we're going to do when I happened to be watching Pluto TV's MST channel and they were showing Master Ninja, so I quickly said Master Ninja. Later, I regretted it. I mean, there are so many fun MST episodes. Why did I pick this one? But I made my bed, so I guess I've got to sleep in it. But before I start, I will say I don't think we'll be doing Master Ninja 2 anytime soon. Even if it does have Crystal Bernard, David McCollum, and George Lazenby in it. Now the show opens with the bots creating a model car, and it ends up with Crow and Gypsy quoting lyrics to Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. Yeah, I mean, if not for the limitations of space, we ourselves might be riding through the mansions of glory in our suicide machines or jammed together on the highway with broken heroes on a last chance power drive. Well, I guess we would then. Wrap your hands across my velvet rims Uh and strap your hands across my engines. All right, who taught her that? Which one of you? Also, Magic Voice is played by Alexandra Carr. Seems to be a little cranky. Oh well, don't say hi, Jeep. Well, it's great that you guys have a hobby. I think Carr's version of Magic Voice was always my favorite. The Invention Exchange has the Mads creating a boil-in-a-bag IV bag, which is being tested on Frank, who lays in a hospital bed. Joel and the bots have adult pop-up books with such titles as Anna Karenina and Great Expectations. But this comes to a halt as Crow says his book is William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, though I'd be curious to see what pops up there. When we cut back to the Mads for the announcement of what film they're going to show, we find Dr. Forrester attempting to smother Frank with a pillow. Forrester says of Master Ninja... Well, your, your movie today is, is really bad. Uh, it's called Master Ninja uh, 1, I think. Enjoy. Push the button, Frank. Oh, right, I'll get it. And as Nancy pointed out, our film begins with those delightful film venture credits. The film then fades into a shot of the Pacific Ocean with the words, Illinois, USA. All right, maybe we can use our suspension of disbelief to believe that they're showing us Lake Michigan. But moments later, we see the exterior shot of a bar called the Surf Bar. Now, unless things have changed since the last time I drove by Lake Michigan, no one is surfing in those waters. Ooh, 
filmed in Mendocino County, Illinois. <laughs> and as a person who has lived in Illinois for his whole life, I can confidently say this was not filmed in Illinois. One of the first jokes I really enjoyed was, at the beginning, Lee Van Cleef is supposed to be escaping Japan, but before he goes, he releases his pet bird, gives it its freedom. Crow says, I thought I thought Dwayne Beata. I did, I did, it's Wee Van Cleef. For some reason, a Tweety Bird voice saying Lee Van Cleef just sounded funny. And as I watched, I began to realize that while some MST3K episodes are fun to watch over and over again, not so much with this one. Anyway, Van Patten plays Max, and he almost hits a panicking Demi Moore who is running from the law or something. And it turns out that Van Patten is going to help Demi Moore and her father, played by Claude Akins, save Claude's airport from a corrupt and ruthless land developer. You got a warrant, Sheriff? Yeah, I got a made-for-TV warrant right you here. You better have one before you take one more step onto my tarmac. And as Nancy mentioned, it has some classic 80s music. Here comes your TV cow chase. It's the TV cow chase theme. Hey, your TV cow chase. Your TV cow chase theme. Ha! Okay. TV cow chase. Whoa. <laughs> I love that. And I had another thought as I watched. One could make this today without changing much to it as a silly parody of 80s action shows. Anyway, before the first break, Crow leaves the theater early. When the others arrive, he has this whole conspiracy theory he presents to them called the Van Patten Project. Did either of you two stop to consider for a moment why Timothy Van Patten is in this stupid film? Uh, Patrick Swayze was busy? Good guess, but I thought of that. No, we're dealing with something even more terrifying than the Swayze conundrum. I'm talking about a plot more insidious. Gentlemen, I present for your consideration, assist... The Van Patten Project! Sitting atop the Van Patten corporate structure, Dick Van Patten, or should I say Don Dick Van Vito Patten Corleone! <gasps> his evil plan to place an annoyingly bad actor, preferably one of his own hellish drop, in every B grade made for TV and low budget film in Hollywood! And we find at the end, according to Crow, the mastermind behind the whole Van Patten family is Joyce Van Patten. On a personal note, I always thought that Joyce Van Patten was the most talented out of the bunch, but that's just me. Anyway, back to the master. Max, you see, is your typical 80s action hero who has a strong sense of right and wrong and can't help but get involved in other people's problems. So the master reluctantly decides to train Max in the ways of the ninja. And for these scenes, we discover that Lee Van Cleef has a magic costume. Oh, it's not supposed to be a magical costume in the show, but it has the amazing ability to make Cleef look thinner and more fit. His protruding stomach somehow disappears when he puts on the black bodysuit. You know, black is so slimy, you can't even see his gut anymore. Good. That was really, uh, oh, oh, it was still good. Now, the first half of this movie, and you can't see me, but I'm doing the air quotes thing, wraps up pretty quickly. Max takes care of the corruption and saves the airport. And while he's doing that, the master has a fight with his ex-student from Japan. 
Lee wins the fight, of course, and afterwards he says that he severed the student's artery. You won't fight again tonight. It's hurt. An artery was severed. Boy, it's not even bleeding. Okasa, now a ninja master, was one of my students. Sent to kill you. What ancient little gadget did you use to sever Okasa's artery? My fingers. Sticky fingers. Sorry I asked. Personally, I think a severed artery is pretty severe. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I think there would be a good chance that, well, he would die. And the next break, Crow, Tom Servo, and Joel have a ninja-style battle in which the background music is what's important. Yes, yes, found myself in Japan after the war. Boy, talk about tranquil. Let me tell you. But anyway, I got to know some ninjas. Hey, they're great guys, and they're thick as flies over there. Well, one thing led to another, and... Yo, rinse for us, Dr. Me and my scary theme music will follow you and your pleasant katarros will to the end of the earth. And then I will... Back in the theater, we find our film has completely switched stories. Uh, this is somewhat similar to the first episode... I mean, the first part of the movie. Yes. Silly String Ninja in color. It's no longer about a private airport, but a crime lord from Chinatown who's trying to take control of a nightclub. We start out with Max and the master walking into the nightclub and watching a woman dance. The actress playing the part is definitely not a professional dancer, yet everybody in the film pretends that she's doing something fantastic. I uh, hate to burst your bubble, but she stinks. (laughs) She has a sister who's confined to a wheelchair, and their father apparently was a dancer in old silent films. The next break has Joel and the Bots coming up with alternatives for nunchucks. You see, we've taken the classic Japanese nunchaku, or the bastardized American nunchuck, and Right, exactly. Yeah, after all, what is a nunchuck but two things on a chain? Yeah, right. Mm. So, for instance, a clumsy ninja would use these... Thumb chucks. <laughs> yeah, also known as dumb chucks. <laughs> and when our story returns, we see, well, blah, blah. There's a kidnapping. The one girl's trying to walk. There's a little fighting. There's a little tightrope walking. And voila, everything's rosy at the end and everybody's happy. <laughs> I love the way they banter. Such chemistry. <laughs> uh, miss, could we please get some bread or something? And then, on the last break, we get the best part of the show, the Master Ninja song. Master Ninja theme song! Master Ninja theme song! You know, this is not one of the best MST3K shows. It is a problem that I have with some of the newer MST episodes. I just watched Munchies, the most recent. And while the show has some good laughs, in fact, this was probably the funniest out of all the new shows I've watched. At the same time, the film Munchie was so horrible and not bad in a fun way that I don't know if I really want to watch it again. Back in the original run, when they were doing those old classic sci-fi films and whatnot... Those are films that I can watch with or without the MST riffing. And so, as you might expect, this is not on the top of my list as far as MST3K. If I could only get out of this chair. Hey, if we could only get out of this movie. A little bit before I go. First, a couple of apologies. 
Sorry about this show being so late. For those outside the U.S., last weekend was a holiday weekend, and Monday was a holiday we call Memorial Day, a day to honor the men and women who have died while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. But basically, it's a day for barbecuing. Anyway, we had a lot of family things going on, and I've been really busy at work, and time just got away from me. So, And, and if the show seemed a little short, it's just that, well, and I think Nancy found this also, there just wasn't a lot to talk about. I, I picked a bad MST. I did read that Mystery Science Theater episode 624 was originally going to feature Master Ninja 3, but was replaced with Samson and the Vampire Women. There's no explanation of why they cut Master Ninja 3, but aren't we all glad they did? Now, a lot of the original shows, which was just called The Master, are available on YouTube. I thought about watching an episode to see if the show had been re-edited for the film Ventures International Treatment, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Now listen up, we have a Facebook page, and we'd love to read your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Please join us. I also have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. I'm also looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of celluloid all being one word. Feel free to email me for any reason. And if you can leave me a review, hopefully a good one, and wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I want to thank Nancy Fry for contributing to today's episode and apologize for me picking this particular film. And of course, thanks to all of you who listen. I really appreciate it. Take care, and we'll be back next Monday with something thrilling. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multipass. You know this multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.